Um, this uh, historical narrative, it, uh, it does require a little bit larger uh, section that we'll be looking at this morning. Um, and, and because of that, we're going to do things just a, a little bit different than we would ordinarily do. Ordinarily, uh, I would read the passage and we would pray and then uh, move into the sermon. But this morning, we're going to read the passage as we go through the sermon. So as we look at each of the points, we'll, we'll look at the section that's being covered by that uh, area. Hopefully then it keeps the uh, part that we're considering uh, fresh in our minds and we're able to move through it uh, at, uh, at a good pace. But, so with that in mind, would you uh, join me in prayer? Our Father, my heart is just uh, lifted up to see the faces, some of which I haven't seen in, in uh, almost a year and a half, and, and others, it, it hasn't been quite that long, but to see them today, and then others that I've seen uh, in the last week, and it's just good to see your people gathered together to worship you. Thank you, Father, for that kindness, and thank you for the opportunity that we have here today to abandon ourselves to you and to rejoice in your goodness through uh, our singing through our prayer, through the sacrament of baptism, and, and now as we look to your word. Lord, would you deal with us? Would you deal with us in your grace? Would you teach us? But more than teach us, O oh God, we pray that your spirit would enliven our hearts to trust you more, that you would be the operative element of our lives. We pray for our children and children's worship, that you might use the message there to bring them to you, and for all of us, O oh God, change us, make us more effective as we seek to testify about you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. The, the theme for the book of Daniel that we've been looking at is building God's kingdom while living in man's. This year we're looking at going, uh, heading home. And the fact that we're trying to set our hearts on heaven, how do we, how do, we do that? How do we live uh, within this world? Daniel gives us a good example of that as the nation of Judah has been captured by Babylon. And uh, these young people in particular are taken into Babylon. And, and now they're in a place where God says, I want you to work for the benefit of that nation while keeping your attention on the hope to come home in 70 years. And they would be able to return to Judah. And so it, it's very poignant for us. It's easy for us to think that, well, we are home. I mean, we're, 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 we're here. We're, we're Americans. We live in our... And yet the reality is, no, we are Christians and our citizenship is in heaven. And that's what we're living for, is for that kingdom. And while we're in this kingdom, we seek to build that kingdom. And chapters 2 through 4 of Daniel really is about uh, the conversion of Nebuchadnezzar. Now, there's a lot that's there. I mean, these are stories we're, we're all very familiar with, and we've looked at a, a number of times growing up in our children's Bible uh, storybooks. I mean, there, there's more from Daniel than any of the prophets, right, that uh, we find there, uh, story after story. And we're going to look at Daniel's uh, interpreting the dream, that's this week, and then the fiery furnace with the three Hebrew children, and then, and then we begin to look at uh, uh, chapter uh, 4, where Nebuchadnezzar is sent off into the, the wilderness and spends time in insanity, and, and eventually God gets a hold of him. And all three of those the, the focal point is Nebuchadnezzar coming to faith. And it concludes chapter 4 with that great declaration of faith that, that he gives to us. To bring him to faith, God brought these waves of witnesses, if you will. And he starts out with Daniel, and Daniel bringing his witness, and then the three Hebrew children, and then finally God himself. Uh, clearly the best of the three witnesses, and God himself brings him actually to salvation. But God used each of these events in Nebuchadnezzar's life. And, 
And as we look at, at in particular, Daniel's uh, witness, we see in chapter 2 that, that first he had to prepare to witness, that there was a, a preparation that was going on. And, and from that, we see that we can prepare to witness. We see that in uh, uh, the preparation for witness meant that we, we need to see the thirst of the people around us. We need to be available when God calls. And then we need to praise God, recognizing that he's using us. And now, in verses 20 through, four, through 49, we begin to see how do we witness? How do we testify about God? If we were called in to a court case and we were going to be witnesses um, in court, a good attorney, I'm certain, would take some time to talk to us before we go in to testify, right? Would kind of prepare us for what we're going to experience. Going to explain to us, well, here's what you're going to see. Here's the types of questions so that we would be ready and we'd be prepared. Well, that's what we want to prepare ourselves for, is witnessing to our neighbors. Whereas that won't be so formal as, as a, a courtroom. It'll be much more informal, but we still need to know what we're to be doing. And I think as we look at this section of Daniel, we are able to see three principles in testifying about God. And I want us to focus on those three. And the first one is that in testifying about God, we need to set the context. Um, in, in homiletics, which is the, the, the study of preaching, delivering sermons, we, we talk about the different elements, and one of the elements is the introduction. What's the purpose of the introduction? And there is a very real purpose that we have, and that is when we all came into this room, we all had different things on our minds, right? We're all thinking about different things. Some people are thinking about Sunday school and just what a riveting lesson it was. And, and, uh, and then some of the adults are also maybe thinking about Sunday school. Um, we're, <laughs> um, we, 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 what's for lunch, right? I mean, frankly, yeah, I'm thinking about that. About the time I'm finishing breakfast, that's, that's on my mind. And, and we're, we're thinking about what's going to be going on, what are the kids doing, what are, and all the different conversations that we've had. And we've got all these different things, and every one of us has got all these different things in our minds. And my job is now to talk about something that probably almost none of us has been considering, right? So how do I get us all on the same page? That's the purpose of the introduction. And uh, that's what I've been trying to do now for about four and a half minutes, is to try to get us all on the same page and so that we're able to uh, consider this passage together. Well, Daniel had a similar situation as he, Arioch, and King Nebuchadnezzar were going to get together. And he begins to set the context uh, for their discussion. Let's read verse 24 through 30 together. Therefore... Daniel went in to Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went in and spoke to him as follows, Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Take me into the king's presence, and I will declare the interpretation to the king. Then Arioch hurriedly brought Daniel into the king's presence and spoke to him as follows, I have found a man among the exiles from Judah who can make the interpretation known to the king. The king said to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, are you able to make known to me the dream which I have seen and its interpretation? Daniel answered before the king and said, As for the mystery about which the king has inquired, neither wise men, conjurers, magicians, nor diviners are able to declare it to the king. However, there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will take place in the latter days. This was your dream and the visions in your mind while on your bed. 
As for you, O king, well on your bed, your thoughts turn to what would take place in the future, and he who reveals mysteries has made known to you what will take place. But as for me, this mystery has not been revealed to me for any wisdom residing in me more than in any other living man, but for the purpose of making the interpretation known to the king, and that you may understand the thoughts of your mind." How can we set the context? Well, I think it means we need to address the beliefs. As we, as we look at this passage and remember what we were seeing, and we remember a little bit about uh, King Nebuchadnezzar, one of the things that we know that Nebuchadnezzar struggled with is he trusted man. That's who his trust was in. When his heart was troubled, where did he go? To find peace. He said, bring in the sorcerers and the conjurers and the wise men from my kingdom, and they will give me the information that will put my heart at ease, right? His trust was in the people around him. His trust was, was in man. As a matter of fact, even as, as uh, uh, he's, he's trusting man, the conflict that he had is he was also incredibly cynical. If you remember from the beginning part of this chapter, that, that he had the dream and he said to his wise men, tell me its interpretation. They said, great, well tell us what the dream was. And his cynicism said, yeah, wouldn't you like to know? He says, because then if I tell you what the dream is, you'll just tell me whatever you think I want to hear, and I don't know that it's going to be true or not. I've got no reason to believe you. You're just going to act so as to protect yourself, so as you can, can keep your position. No, you're going to lie to me. So his cynicism turned around to where he didn't trust man, but his trust was only in man, and he had this dilemma inside himself that he's dealing with. Well, they gave him reason to be cynical, didn't they? Because they'd failed him frequently, and he recognized that. And, and the fact that then they couldn't answer him, they couldn't tell him what the dream was, because they couldn't know what was in his mind, which is ironic, because the cynic believes he knows what's in the mind of the other person. Um, and so I find it fascinating that there is this uh, interplay that's, that's going on in this conversation. The king was trusting in people to calm his heart. And so he turns to Daniel, and he says... Are you able to make known to me the dream which I have seen and its interpretation? He turns his attention from the, the wise men and the conjurers and the sorcerers, and he says to Daniel, are you able? Are you the person who's going to be able to comfort me? Are you the one who's going to be able to answer the queries which are inside my mind? Can you do this? I'll put my trust in you as a person. To which Daniel then addresses the basis of Nebuchadnezzar's faith. What is it that Nebuchadnezzar was believing? It was man. So Daniel says, as for the mystery about which the king has inquired, neither wise men, conjurers, magicians, nor diviners are able to declare it to the king. Now, I'm not sure. I'm, I'm, I'm reasonably confident there was not a long pause before he said, however. Right? Because <laughs> the king was already ready to take his head off. And, and, and so this, this is something you wanted to be clear. However, there is a God in heaven. He points out to him, you can't trust man. You're right. There's no man who can do this. He addresses the, 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 the basis of Nebuchadnezzar's faith, and he goes right to it. He sets the context and says, your trust is in man, but man cannot give you what you need. However, there is a God in heaven. He turns his attention. Daniel's address was toward the issue of faith. I'm a fan of evangelism explosion. 
affectionately called EE. Has anybody here been trained in EE? A few? Okay. Yeah, so we've got a few. Wouldn't surprise me if Randy Steele trained you. We had the same trainer, um, which is kind of cool. So, um, but uh, in, in Evangelism Explosion, which we call, again, EE, I think because Presbyterians just can't say words. We have to spell them out, right? Uh, that's why we're not a part of the Presbyterian Church in America. We're part of the PCA, which has M&A and MTW as our mission organizations. We've got CCB, which takes care of constitutional business, and everybody knows about the SJC, and uh, we go to GA every year, and uh, we're a part of the SVP. Can't we just use words? But I guess not. So we, therefore, we have EE, okay? It's, uh, it's, an, it's a, a, a great evangelism training uh, ministry. And I, I believe that the genius of evangelism explosion is the diagnostic questions. The diagnostic questions are to be asked as you begin to build a relationship with someone and you talk to them about the gospel and you come to a point where you ask them, have you come to the place in your spiritual life where you know for certain that if you were to die tonight that you would go to heaven? This diagnostic question, if if the person says yes, you have an idea that, okay, well, they may be a believer and, and where we need to go. They may say no, which they still may be a believer, but what they need is a message to help them find assurance. And so you're, you're able to begin to figure that out. But then the second question, and I always preface the second question by saying, this may be the most important question you'll ever be asked in your life. And I believe it is. Suppose you were to die tonight and God were to say to you, why should I let you into my heaven? What would you say? Do you see the poignancy of that question? There's no, no, no doubt that is the most important question any human being can ever be asked. Because what it does is it brings us squarely to the point of having to articulate what is the basis of my faith. What am I trusting in to get me into heaven? What do I believe is necessary in order for me to be saved? It's an incredibly important question. Spoiler alert, the answer is Jesus died for my sins. Not to give the right answer, but to put your trust in that right now. That's what we're looking for. Is that what the individual is trusting for their salvation. The great thing about evangelism explosion is then as you present the gospel, at the conclusion you come back and remind them of what their answer was so that they can see, yeah, I was trusting something other than Jesus and I really need Him. And so you begin to invite them to put their trust in Jesus Christ. Why do we want to focus on the issues of faith? Because Hebrews 11.6 tells us Without faith, it's impossible to please God, for the one who comes to Him must believe that He exists and that He is a rewarder of those who seek Him. That's why. So we begin by addressing the beliefs. And then we try to work to demonstrate God's hand. To demonstrate God's hand. Daniel had an eye to see something of what God was doing. I think it's a a, a beautiful way in which he turns Nebuchadnezzar. He just addresses Nebuchadnezzar, but in addressing Nebuchadnezzar, he shows him what God was doing. He starts out in verse 28 and he says, However, there is a God in heaven. Where does he begin with? 
He begins by asserting and stating there is a God, that God exists. He is real. He's not an idea. He's not a God who lives in a temple. He's not a God who is a, a, a statue that we have, we have uh, uh, forged of our own brilliance. But he is a God who is in heaven. Then he goes on to say, in, in verse 28, um, there's a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. Not only is there a God in heaven, but he's a God who actually knows everything that's taking place. The mysteries that he's revealing, he begins to show, is not only revealing to him the future, but he's also able to reveal the mystery to Daniel of what was going on in Nebuchadnezzar's mind. That we can't know what was in Nebuchadnezzar's mind, but God does. The God who is in heaven knows. As a matter of fact, listen, he told me. And so he must know. And so this is a God who's not just up in heaven, but he's a God who's aware of everything that is. And then that he goes on to say, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will take place in the latter days. He's not only a God who reveals mystery, but he's a personal God who he says to Nebuchadnezzar, he has revealed this to you. To you as an individual. He's not just a God who's out there just, just setting in place all that's going to take place, getting the world spinning and saying, okay, go. But he's a God who's actively involved, even in Nebuchadnezzar's life. And then he shows that he has actually invaded Nebuchadnezzar's life in verse 29. As for you, O king, while on your bed your thoughts turn to what would take place in the future, and he who reveals mysteries has made known to you what will take place. He's saying, there you were in your, on your bed, no one there, just you, and God invaded that place. You were just thinking and God came into that place. Why was he thinking about what would take place in the future? Because God led him there. And why did God lead him there? Because God wanted to show him. And God wanted to show his reality. All of these things are what God was doing in Nebuchadnezzar's life. And Daniel saw it and demonstrated it to Nebuchadnezzar. We need to begin to develop that in our own lives to be able to recognize what God is doing. I want to talk for just a moment for, for parents because we had the baptism this morning and we talked a little bit about that, but I want us to talk even farther. There, there, there are many of us who have had children and we have had them baptized. I want to ask you a question. Why did God place your child in your home? Because the other folks were full? I don't know, you know, right? I mean, we begin to wonder, well, why? Well, you know, there are certain places in Scripture that begin to tell us a little bit about that. We see something of it in, in Genesis chapter 18 as, as the angel of the Lord is talking to Abraham and, or talking to one of the other angels about Abraham. And he says, For I've chosen him, Abraham, so that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring upon Abraham what he has spoken about him. God chose Abraham that he might teach the gospel to his children, right? And to his household. And that it may go on to the generations following him and we who've been adopted into that household receive that same hope. The purpose wasn't just, okay, I just want the kids circumcised, right? No, I want the kids 
to be walking with me is what God is telling him. So that we see, and we read it uh, in the baptism from uh, Genesis 17.7, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your descendants after you. Think about it. Parents, you believe in Jesus Christ. Amen? Why? Because you're so smart? Well, that's a part of it. But is it not that by grace you have been saved? That I believe because God is done. By grace I've been saved through faith. And oh, that's not of myself either. It is the gift of God. So God chose you, gave you faith, and brought the children into your life. Into your life. You who believe in Jesus Christ. You who are committed to pray with your children. And to take them to the throne of God. And to hold their hand. And to pray with them. And to pray for them. To plead with God. God, please deal with these children. Not according to my obedience. But according to the obedience of Jesus Christ. Deal with them in your covenant faithfulness, O God. Do not allow my disobedience and my failings to be given over to these children, but instead allow the obedience of Christ to be given over to them. Bring them, O God, to trust in Jesus Christ at an early age. And we plead with God on their behalf. You bring them to a church where they will be surrounded by other people who believe in Jesus Christ. Did God know this before He put the child in your home? Yes. And he knew that they would have the example of the people who were around them. They knew that they would sit in a service and hear the gospel preached in which they would be invited, will you this day put your trust in Jesus Christ? Why would God do all of that? Except that they would hear the gospel and would his spirit draw them to believe so that they too will stand up and say, by grace I've been saved through faith and that not of myself. It is a gift of God. Do you see now we begin to look at God bringing little Brianna May into your home and we see something of what's God doing? What's he doing? It's exciting. It's exciting. And it might not be answered this morning because she needs that time of faith. But we pray with tremendous hope as we learn to see God's hand in the life of the children. Robin's dad uh, encouraged me to ask a question. I was going back to Scotland to tour around, to talk to as many people as I could, most of them pastors, um, to find out about the, the context of the gospel in, in, uh, in Scotland and how we might be able to minister there. And he said, Vince, you need to ask him one question. What is God doing? And I found that to be a great question to ask people. Even talking to non-Christians, to say, what is God doing? And most of the time i found, they, they don't just look at you and say, I do not believe there is a God. Because mostly they do. But they're intrigued by the question. Shouldn't we be? What is God doing? He's doing. We know that. What's he doing? And if I get eyes to be able to see that, and words to be able to express to the people around me, look at what God's doing. Look at his hand. Look at, look at, and that helps us then begin to align with what he's doing. So I need to address the beliefs, demonstrate God's hand, and then I need to declare my allegiance. Verse 28. 
However, there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will take place in the latter day. This was your dream and the visions in your mind. He first of all says, there is a God, and this is the true God. This is not the God you follow. This is the true God. And in verse 30, he says, but as for me, this mystery has not been revealed to me for any wisdom residing in me more than any other living man. In other words, he has revealed this to me. It's the God of heaven who has revealed this to me. It is my God who has revealed this to me. He makes his allegiance known, doesn't he? He says, by the way, king, I know you serve a lot of gods, but this is the one I serve. He's the true and the living God, the only true and living God. Make it clear that you serve the true and the living God. Make it clear that you love your friend because you serve the true and the living God who loves them as well. And then invite them to Jesus. To say what I try to say in each sermon. Do you believe that he died for your sins? Would you like to do that today? Trust him. We set the context. That's, that's where our testimony begins. Is we, we, we set the context. Here's, here's the environment in which we're talking. And then we begin to speak to the need. To speak to the need. The need of the moment, the need of the time. Let's read verses 31 through 45 together. You, O king, were looking, and behold, there was a single great statue. That statue, which was large and of extraordinary splendor, was standing in front of you, and its appearance was awesome. The head of that statue was made of fine gold, its breasts and its arms of silver, its belly and its thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. You continued looking until a stone was cut out without hands, and it struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and crushed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were crushed all at the same time and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors, and the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them was found. But the stone that struck the statue became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream. Now we will tell its interpretation before the king. You, O king, are the king of kings to whom God, the God of heaven, has given the kingdom, the power, the strength, and the glory. And wherever the sons of men dwell, or the beasts of the field, or the birds of the sky, he has given them into your hand and has caused you to rule over them all. You are the head of gold. After you there will arise another kingdom inferior to you, then another third kingdom of bronze which will rule all over all the earth. Then there will be a fourth kingdom as strong as iron, inasmuch as iron crushes and shatters all things. So, like iron that breaks in pieces, it will crush and break all these in pieces. In that you saw the feet and toes partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it will be a divided kingdom, but it will have in it the toughness of iron, inasmuch as you saw the iron mixed with the common clay. As the toes of the feet were partly of iron and partly of pottery, so some of the kingdom will be strong and part of it will be brittle. And in that you saw the iron mixed with common clay, that will... They will combine with one another in the seed of men, but they will not adhere to one another, even as iron does not combine with pottery. In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed, and that kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms, but it will itself endure forever. Inasmuch as you saw that a stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it crushed the iron... 
the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. The great God has made known to the king what will take place in the future. So the dream is true, and its interpretation is trustworthy. He talks about five kingdoms, right? That's what the dream was about. It was this one statue and then this rock. And it's all, all about these five kingdoms. And the first kingdom is the Babylonian kingdom. And Nebuchadnezzar is the head of that. He is the head of gold. This is the kingdom that is there right now. This kingdom would be replaced by an inferior one, but that's the Medo-Persian kingdom, which would come in. And it would be the Medo-Persian kingdom, which actually sends Judah back home that God uses for that purpose. Following that would be the Greek kingdom, and the Greeks would come in and would rule over that area, which is the, the bronze. And who were the, the Greeks replaced by? It was the Romans who would come in, and that's the iron and the, the pottery. And we see a, a whole lot of the symbolism of understanding uh, what the Roman kingdom was like, even, even from this. And these, these kingdoms, what happens to them? There they are, they're standing up, the kingdoms of man, but there would be a stone that is cut without hand. So, 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 sort of like a baby born to a virgin, right? And that stone comes, and that stone hits the iron and the clay, the Roman kingdom, and from that destroys all of them. Jesus is born during the Roman Empire. And it would uh, wipe them out. And then that stone would become a mountain which would fill the earth and would never go away. Right? So that's the church of Jesus Christ. The, the, the new covenant, if you will, as it came in through Jesus that the king of that kingdom was born during the Roman Kingdom. Now we can spend a whole lot of time and, and many sermons are preached on all the different parts of the, the five kingdoms and, and that's not really what I want to focus on. Because we're really talking about the testimony of Daniel and how we testify about God. So I want us to, to understand what he's doing and he's speaking specifically to the need because Nebuchadnezzar had had this dream and it troubled him, right? Did he have to know what the answer was? No, he just survived, Right? And was the answer in and of itself necessarily salvific? No. But the fact that God had invaded his life and that there was a God who was telling him beforehand, that was the part that he was needing to grasp as they were speaking to the need. How do we speak to the need? Well, we need to bring the listener into the story. Just as Daniel did with Nebuchadnezzar. Which means we need to treat them with, with respect. Think about who Nebuchadnezzar was. Okay, we know a few things about Nebuchadnezzar. We know that Nebuchadnezzar was a murderer, right? He was just a, a horrible person. We see in other places in the uh, uh, Old Testament, it talks about Nebuchadnezzar and the things that, that they would do in uh, just destroying their enemies and uh, wiping them out. Even the things that they had done to Judah before they were able to take him into captivity. He was not only that, he was also a slaver. He was indeed enslaving different people, including the, the children of Judah who had been taken uh, into captivity and he was holding them as slaves. How do we feel about murderers and slavers today? Right? Pretty awful kinds of people. But we see not, not just that about him. There are other things that, that we see about him. We also know that he's an incredibly immoral man. And on top of that, he's an idolater. But not just having one idol. He had a lot of idols that he served. This is the paradigm of virtue that we usually look for within a, a ruler of a nation, right? This is the kind of guy every one of us is saying, yeah, that's who I want to go witness to, right? We actually have a whole lot more interest in, 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 in uh, uh, witnessing to uh, our, our moral unbeliever friends, right? That's who, and frankly, we'd rather actually just talk to Christians all the time. And, and, uh, but this is who 
Daniel went in to witness to. And how did he treat him? Did you notice in this passage how he addressed uh, the murder and the slavery and the idolatry? And Oh wait, he didn't, did he? He didn't give Nebuchadnezzar a list of all of his crimes, did he? As a matter of fact, how did he treat him? In verse 37, 38. You, O king, are the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, the strength, and the glory. And wherever the sons of men dwell, or the beasts of the field, or the birds of the sky, he's given them in your hand, and has caused you to rule over them. You are the head of gold. Not exactly the way we would ordinarily begin a gospel presentation as someone as, as wicked as this king. But what is Daniel doing? He's treating him with respect. He's treating him with kindness. Were all those things that Daniel said about him true too? Yeah. And Daniel was able to recognize that and was able to reach out to them. A couple different ways in which we, we tend to not treat people with respect is sometimes we, we speak with some level of condescension. Right? And this is maybe one of the, the weaknesses in my mind of evangelism explosion is some of the transitions are things like, yeah, I used to sin like that too. Yeah, <laughs> that's such an arrogant statement. <laughs> it's like, yeah, I used to do that like a second or two ago. But anyway, it's, it's just, you know, it just to, to begin to recognize that I haven't stopped sinning because I came to Jesus. Now, hopefully God is sanctifying me and I'm, I'm moving in a direction that's becoming less and less powerful within my life. But, but, but that's really condescending to say to someone. And it's really saying, yeah, you can be awesome like me too. And not exactly a, a good, respectful way of, of dealing with people. The other is we can, we can really push right? We can be incredibly pushy and we can demand a response right now. And it has to be the response we want. And we're just going to keep pushing. If they don't respond right, we'll do, you ever seen the door-to-door salesmen that are trained to come into your house? And when you say no, they go, and they slam their books and they get all mad, right? And it's actually a sales tactic to make you feel guilty because then they can pull some sales out of you. And sometimes we do a similar kind of thing as Christians and it's really kind of ugly, right? That's not what Daniel did. He treated him with respect because he respected him. And because he was able to see, even in this uh, sinful man, the image of God. And so we need to be able to respect the people that we are witnessing to. And apply the message to the individual. Did you notice the second person singular? There was at least one homeschool mom earlier today that I asked that, and she's like, it's like awesome. You know, some, some teachers are like, yes, I was doing a grammatical analysis as you were reading this. Most of us probably not. But he talked directly to Nebuchadnezzar, didn't he? He was very specific. You. And he applied it to Nebuchadnezzar and he brought him into the story and he showed how it applies specifically and directly to Nebuchadnezzar. And he applied it specifically to Nebuchadnezzar's beliefs. You think that it's man that you need, but what you need is this God of heaven who is not only invading your life, but telling you what's going to take place in the future. Put your trust in him. In speaking to the need, we bring the listener into the story, and then we always want to exalt Jesus. Um, Verse 45 Inasmuch as you saw a stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it crushed the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, the gold, um, the great God, the great God, 
has made known to the king what will take place. I just love how he shows this stone, the Lord Jesus and his kingdom, is exalted above all else. He's higher than any of it. He's absolute. Um, none of this statue matters. It'll all just go like dust, doesn't he say? It's just gonna, it's gonna disappear. It'll be nowhere, but he's there. And who is it? Who brought this? It's the great God, not just the God. The great God. He's exalting the Lord Jesus Christ. Even before he knows the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, he's exalting him. Um, he's a stone. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20. The Apostle Paul tells us about the church, that the church having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself being the corner stone. He's the corner stone. First Peter chapter 2, verse 6. For this is contained in Scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. This precious value then is for you who believe, but for those who disbelieve, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, for they stumble because they are disobedient to the word, and to this doom they were also appointed. You see, the picture of Jesus as that stone. And this idea that it is the stone that is exalted above all else. It's the stone that draws the attention so that uh, I believe it's Peter says in, in Acts chapter 4, He is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, but which became the chief cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which... We must be saved. The gospel is all about Jesus. Now I've seen what we call the gospel sometimes presented that, that, uh, that you need to, to believe in God because He's going to make your life feel more fulfilled. You, 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 you will find greater happiness if you'll just believe in Him. And so we get this, this, this message that really begins to turn around us and the benefits that we get, right? Whereas the gospel, according to Paul, is that Jesus died for our sins, according to the Scriptures. He was buried, he was raised again the third day, according to the Scriptures. The gospel is all about Jesus Christ. And we need to keep that central. As we begin to testify about God, it's all about exalting Jesus Christ. Because what He did on the cross is what matters. That's the key. That's the center. That's the focal point that we need to keep. And we need to invite people to trust that, just as Daniel reminded Nebuchadnezzar that the message in its interpretation is trustworthy. He can trust it. He can put his trust in that message. We need to set the context. We need to speak to the need. And finally, we need to wait for God. Verses 46 through 49. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell on his face and did homage to Daniel and gave orders to present him an offering and fragrant incense. The king answered Daniel and said, Surely your God, surely your God is a God of gods and a Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, since you have been able to reveal this mystery. Then the king promoted Daniel and gave him many great gifts and he made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. And Daniel made requests to the king and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego 
over the administration of the province of Babylon while Daniel was at the king's court. I don't know about you, but I envision Daniel a little disappointed as he shares this great dream and as he shows that God has done this great thing and God has revealed it and God is involved in Nebuchadnezzar's life. Clearly God loves Nebuchadnezzar and God is inviting him to himself and he tells him all of that and, and he could see Nebuchadnezzar leaning forward on his throne, you know, getting over, paying attention. It's like this is so important, this is so great and, and, then, and then he falls at, at Daniel's feet and does homage to Daniel. And can't you see Daniel going, probably followed by oi, but anyway, as he's just so disappointed, so disappointed that, that this wasn't the response that, that he was hoping for. He was hoping that, that the king would lead forward and say, well, what must I do to be saved, right? Wouldn't that be great? Would, wouldn't it be wonderful if he'd say, how can I know this God? Or if he had turned to him and said, our God is awesome, Daniel. But he doesn't. He doesn't. He shows that he still trusts man. By giving homage to Daniel. He shows that God is still distant from him by saying, it's your God, Daniel. Not mine, not ours. And yet, I would have been discouraged, but we don't really get any indication of that from Daniel, do we? We see something different. And we see from a, a principle for us to, to, to live by that we need to learn to see the good. Daniel accepted the gratitude that was shown to him, didn't he? Matter of fact, even the promotion, he's promoted this great spot. What's the first thing he does with it? He says, well, I'd like uh, these guys to be promoted as well. And he got that. So he began to act with the authority that was granted unto him. And so he, was, he accepted the gratitude. Um, I think because he recognized. The king saw a difference, didn't he? Right? He said, it's your God that's great. He recognized that there was a difference, and he recognized that God was the one who was that difference. And Daniel was able to say that and say, this is good. This is a good thing. It's not all the way, but you know what? We planted the seed, and I see the, the dirt just moving a little bit. Maybe there's life under there. Maybe. Maybe. It's good. It's not everything. But like I like to say, I can't get to Denver in one step, can I? I've got to go a little bit at a time. And so he understands that. He maybe didn't see the fact that God was the next step was Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace. Oh, and the fourth one, like a son of God. Spoiler alert for next week. Um, but instead, uh, but did he see that? I don't know. Did he see the insanity that, that Nebuchadnezzar would go through and how God would get a hold of him? I don't know. And he didn't need to because he saw the good was there. He saw that he sees the difference. He knows that a seed had been planted. See, your testimony is a seed. Just because you say to someone, yeah, Jesus has saved my soul, doesn't mean that they're immediately going to say, oh, how can he save mine? They might, but it may take more than that. It may take God taking them through some difficult trials of life, kind of like Nebuchadnezzar had to, before they finally say, I remember that person who said that to me. I remember that scared little 10th grader who ran up to me in a parking lot, handed me a track, and then ran away. And I remember him standing for Jesus Christ in that little fearful way, but it was a witness. It was years before I came to faith, but it was a witness. 
pray to the Lord of the harvest that he will take the seeds that we plant and he will bring forth a harvest and then remain available. You notice that Daniel accepted a position in an immoral, idolatrous government? Yeah, he became a government worker in an immoral, idolatrous government. Why? Could it be because he planted that seed and he wanted to stay close to Nebuchadnezzar because maybe Nebuchadnezzar would need him again? And he would have an opportunity in the next situation to be able to talk about Jesus Christ? I think so. I think it's precisely what he knew. And he said, I will accept this and I'm going to stay close enough that when they need, they can call out to me and they'll know I'm there with the gospel from God himself to maintain the closeness of that relationship as much as we can. And we can't always. Sometimes people just uh, refuse, right? And they don't want anything to do with us, and that's okay. They have that right, and we honor them in that. But we want to remain available. Um, I became a Christian in December of 1982. And um, I was living with my mom, and I'm quite certain that I was obnoxious and odious partly because I still am. But anyway, um, but, but I, I, I love Jesus Christ. He'd saved my soul, and I wanted everybody to know it and believe, right? And I talked to everybody about it and uh, began witnessing to my family. And uh, 15 years later, 15 years of witnessing to my mom and her enduring the odious, obnoxious son, she said to me, what do I have to do to become a Christian? Not to just shut me up. <laughs> but I didn't know all that God had to take her through in that 15 years to bring her to that point where she knew she needed him. But he did. So we stayed close. And when that time came, she was living in our home. And she asked that question and came to salvation. 15 years of praying for someone. That's what we see in Daniel. It could have been that long before Daniel saw the fruit of Nebuchadnezzar coming to faith. It's an author, I don't know anything about them, James Strachan, but I love what he has to say. He says, Saving knowledge is diffused over the earth, not like sunlight, but like torchlight, which is passed from hand to hand. I like that image, don't you? Isn't that a beautiful picture? of the way that God takes the gospel in this world, is that I have a light and I hand it off, and they have a light and they hand it off, and with each passing, the room just gets brighter and brighter and brighter. And that's the way God has decided to accomplish this. Here was Daniel. He was likely about 16 years old when this event occurred. This young man who stands before a king who was threatening just the day before to kill him. And he stands before the king and he testifies about God. It's wonderful. And in that testifying about God, he gives us three principles that can guide us as we seek to testify about God. We learn that we need to set the context. We need, that we need to speak to the need. And we must wait for God to do the work. Let's pray. Father in heaven, 
You know the longing of my heart and the many, many times that I pray to you. And I ask you regarding this congregation that you would make us a light on a hill. God, not a a little candle, but a powerful beacon, a lighthouse that spreads out the hopeful light of the gospel of Jesus Christ to all the world. God, would you answer this prayer? Would you make us into such a bright spot of hope in this world? Help us, O God, to testify about you. And would you, through that testimony, please, Lord Jesus Christ, bring men, women, and children to salvation. And would you, O God, do that even this next week through Vacation Bible School. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.